Rock and Roll's Greatest Failure. Core Baby, That's Really Me by John Otway. Read by John Otway. Core Baby, That's Really Me. Chapter 25. Back in England, John was bored. He had enjoyed the electricity of America. Over here, Polydor had not missed him. And, however often they were told just how many records they could sell in the States, they were adamant about not putting out John's records over there. Well, if they won't, someone else will, John insisted, and gave Morris the job of buying back the rights to North America from Polydor. Polydor were delighted at the idea of getting something back from Otway, and at last felt that his tour had been worth it. It was easily done. John's commitment to Polydor was reduced from four LPs to three, which meant that after just one more album, they could be free of one of their biggest loss-making artists. On his return to England, John spent a considerable amount of time in the studio with Ollie in an attempt to record some of the songs they had written and worked out together. The tour they had just completed had taken its toll on the relationship, though. The recordings amounted to nothing, and the two of them went their separate ways. Having the rights to get his records released in America, John's main interest lay on the other side of the Atlantic and getting a record company and hits over there. As soon as Morris could be persuaded, John was back over on the East Coast again, but this time with a band. After doing so well with Ollie, I thought, this'll really do it. The Americans like bands, especially English ones, said John. I knew it was going to be expensive taking a band over, but in order to maintain the momentum of my career, I really needed to get America in the bag. The band he took over for this second tour was badly under-rehearsed. One short day of practice is not really enough time for a band that has the job of taking America by storm, especially as the guitarist had never heard any of the songs before. But one short day of rehearsal was all they had. If John wanted me to get him an American record deal, complained Morris, he could have at least taught his band the songs. Having a band necessitated having a roadie. But it would have to be someone very cheap, said Morris. Well, what about that guy who used to sleep in the back of the van on the last British tour? I bet he'd do American tour for nothing, replied Otway. And he was right. He did. Lee Charteris was a very enthusiastic, ambitious and smart chap, who happened at the time to look at Otway as a bit of a hero. As Lee left for America, he felt that his big break had come. Fate moves in mysterious ways, and strangely enough, for Lee Charteris, working with Otway was the start of a long and prosperous career. John found that having someone like Lee opened up all sorts of new areas of theatrical entertainment, and from this point on, the abuse of roadies would become one of the focal points of the Otway show. It started off simply enough with John tossing the guitar to Lee when he didn't need it. With Otway's coordination, though, what most people would have been a simple toss-and-catch became something quite different, as Lee vividly remembers. You can see by where John was looking and the motion of his arms and body which direction he was intending to throw the guitar 
But the intended direction of the musical projectile and the direction it actually took had nothing in common at all. This meant that Lee had a similar task to that of a, a goalkeeper facing a penalty kick on cup final day. When Lee saved a guitar, the response from the crowd was also similar. Otway instantly spotted that response. Before long, Lee had got good at saving these tosses, so the tosses became hurls to the side of the stage. As soon as Lee had got used to saving these hurls, Otway changed the time he hurled. Suddenly, for no reason at all, he'd just take his guitar off and chuck it without even looking, says Lee. For the whole of that one-hour show, Lee would stand at the side of the stage, poised and ready to catch John's instruments. There were problems, recalls Lee. The worst was when John stood on the guitar lead when he was throwing. Normally, by the time the guitar had left his hands, John had no further control on its direction, so you had some idea of which way the instrument was going and how you were going to catch it. If he was standing on the lead, though, you never knew when the lead was going to run out, which would stop the guitar's normal trajectory and send it plummeting vertically to the stage. We lost quite a few guitars like that. The combination of Lee's athletic abilities and the way Otway made his job unreasonably difficult was a definite crowd-pleaser. You could always rely on Lee to win audience sympathy, says John. Girls would come up to him afterwards and put their arms round him, saying, how can you let that stupid man treat you like that? But Lee used to love it. This new piece of theatre did, to some extent, make up for the lack of musical experience. But it was not the right way to get a record deal. Depression set in amongst the band to such an extent that, on the way home, the guitarist consumed his whole bottle of duty-free gin on the plane and staggered away from Heathrow Airport saying, Never again. Otway hasn't seen him since. The loss of this guitarist was a little catastrophic since two days after the band's arrival home, Morris had organised a tour of Scandinavia, Ireland and the UK. Swedish television had just shown John's documentary Stardust Man, and Polydor in Sweden had just released the LP and single to capitalise on this exposure. It was one of the best opportunities Otway would have to export his talents to other lands. The bass player, Alan Offer, was a quiet, easy-going chap with a dry sense of humour that stretched as far as finding Otway amusing. He brought in George Lloyd, the guitarist from his last band, and took it upon himself to make sure that the new lineup sounded better than the old one did. On the first gig, it did. But... Everyone in Scandinavia, Ireland and the UK were asking the same question. It was a question Otway was even asking himself. When was he going to have another hit? It was time to record again. Polydor were encouraging Otway to give them the last LP so that they could complete their part of the contract as soon as possible. And anyone Morris spoke to regarding an American deal wanted to hear some new material. Owe was stumped. The last LP had not made any impact, and John started finding its title, Where Did I Go Right, embarrassing. If I can't make it with a hundred-piece orchestra, or a proper band and a producer, what do I do? Otway asked, fearing the inevitable. Well, it worked with Willie. 
What had Mr. Barrett been up to during this time? Well, after he and John split up, he recorded his own solo album, The Call of the Wild. The sleeve showed Willie holding up a card with Otway on it as the Joker. And the single from this LP was an instrumental track entitled I Did It Otway. Willie discovered two acoustic guitars of John's in the back of the XJ-12. He thought it would be amusing to record himself playing a bit of ragtime music and sawing John's instrument up at the same time. He could then send the tape to John with a note saying, Sorry, I didn't realise it was your guitar till I'd finished recording the track. In the end, he felt it was even funnier to get a photograph of him sawing the other guitar. I just thought the tape and the photograph together would have the greatest impact on Otway, he said. And he was quite right. When Otway opened his mail one morning, he was heard to yell, That's my bloody guitar! as he looked at the photo. That's my other bloody guitar! he yelled as he heard the tape. Willie reacted to getting the money from Polydor in a different manner to John. He had used the record company's money to build his own studio, where he could record his album and swap John's guitar. But neither Otway nor Barrett had any record success during their separation, and financial necessities made some sort of reconciliation a wise course of action. I'm sure that we both hated the idea of getting back together, but we were both greedy, says John. Greed is a very creative energy source in the hands of the desperate. And within a short time, there was enough material to make the next LP. Recording at Willie's homemade studio did have its problems. The wiring was chaotic, and the fridge downstairs made a big clicking noise on the tape every time it cut in. They did do some interesting things, like speeding the tape up halfway through a song, when Willie felt it needed a key change, even though it was done at the expense of making Otway's voice sound suddenly squeaky. The most interesting track on the LP was undoubtedly DK5080. Willie had produced a track called KD8050 for Ken Liver Sausage years ago, and whilst checking through some tapes had accidentally played it backwards. The chorus sounded interesting like that, so John sang some forward verses over a drum machine pattern and the pair put together what could possibly be described as a prototype scratch record. The title of the LP came from the design for the cover, with the names Otway and Barrett spread over the front and back, with only the way and bar at the front. The first single of that LP was A Birthday Boy, a quirky little number with an almost catchy chorus line, Who's a lucky birthday boy? Everybody's going to sing. The album came out, and the single came out, and the reformed duo were not heading towards the hit parade. There's no way round it, Otway said. We're going to have to hype the charts. <laughs> 